Hi, everyone. Um, welcome. Welcome. I'm Janet B. I've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. And tonight we are going to work on the chapter more about alcoholism, chapter three, page 30 in the big book. So more about alcoholism, because in chapter two, which Melissa went over on Monday, it talked about what this illness is like but they wanna talk about it more because they think it's so important that we understand what this illness is, that they're spending like two whole chapters on really what a first step is. So Melissa gave a lot of great information Monday. I'm gonna hammer you over the head with some more today. So hopefully no one leaves here unsure of what a first step is and unable to take a first step. So top of the page, it says that we're unwilling to admit we're real, let's say compulsive eaters. No one likes to think he's bodily and mentally different from his fellows. If it was just bodily, right? It's like my daughter has an allergy to mint. Well, all she has to do is just stay away from mint and then she won't start sneezing. It's that simple. She doesn't have to work a 12-step program on mint. Um, but it says we're mentally different also. Our brains work differently, and we'll talk about that in a bit. However, our book tells us in chapter five that once the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. So even though there's a physical component and a mental component to it, the way we recover is spiritual. So come back next Thursday, where we start talking about exactly what we need to do to recover. Um, so then it tells us that we keep, there's countless vain attempts to prove we could eat like other people. And then this, the idea that somehow someday he will control and enjoy his, let's say eating is the great obsession of every abnormal eater. I think that's really interesting. It doesn't say the great obsession is alcohol or food. That's not the obsession. The obsession is this time I'll be able to take one, you know, one bite, one bag, one scoop and be able to stop. And they say, this is an illusion, like a, a not true thought. And we pursue it until we're insane and sometimes dead. And they tell us, okay, what did we learn? We had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were compulsive eaters. This is the first step in recovery. Well, why, right? If I have pneumonia, the doctor doesn't say to me, okay, now before we can give you any treatment, you need to fully concede to your innermost self that you have pneumonia, right? I mean, if we have little kids and they have pneumonia, we just stick the penicillin in their water or just give it to them. They don't have to concede they have pneumonia. Why do we have to really get it that we are compulsive eaters? I mean, they tell us that it's so important that the delusion that we're like other people or ever maybe has to be smashed. And here's why I think if we go back to there is a solution, it's uh, on page 19. Oh, wait, no, wrong page. Page 25, it says, almost none of us like the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, 
the confession of shortcomings, which this process requires for its successful consummation. Who of us want to do self-searching, leveling pride, making amends, helping others, doing self-sacrifice? None of us. The only reason we do it is because we have no options, right? Who takes chemotherapy except someone who believes she has cancer and that's her only hope? So they want to make sure we really get it, what it means to be a compulsive eater. And they say, we've lost the ability to control it. We never recover control. We're like people who've lost their legs. They never grow new ones. And it tells us, as we've discovered, this is a progressive illness. And over any considerable period, we get worse, never better, right? But isn't that the nature of an illness? If I have pneumonia and I don't treat it, it's going to get worse. If someone has cancer and doesn't do anything, it's likely going to get worse. So that's a definition of an illness, right? There's set symptoms and without treatment, it gets worse. Now, yes, there's always like spontaneous recoveries, but we're talking about what the norm is. Um, so again, admitting we have this illness is the first step in recovery. Um, and when it says over any considerable period, we get worse, never better, that's kind of sad, but the beautiful thing on page eight, it tells us recovery is also progressive. It's Bill Wilson is saying, I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. So if you are new or new-ish in the middle of it, which is the hard part, right? Step four, it says we swallow and digest some big chunks of truth about ourselves. That is not fun, but look what happens. Happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that's more progressive. And if you talk to those of us who've been around a while, we can attest that that is really true. Okay, page 31, it says, we've tried every imaginable remedy. Um, sometimes there's brief recovery, but always there's still a worse relapse. Um, if this is a spiritually based illness, which we've learned it is, which this book tells us it is, the remedy has to be spiritual. So that's why the remedies we've tried haven't really haven't really worked. And again, we'll go into detail on this when we do the chapter, We Agnostics. And they go ahead and page 31, 32, they say, okay, we don't want to tell you you're an alcoholic or a compulsive eater. You have to decide for yourself. And so the way they try to help us is by giving us some examples. So they start off by talking about the man of 30. So in a nutshell, here's this guy. He's 30 years old. He says, you know what? Whenever I drink, I drink too much. Therefore, I'm not going to drink at all until I retire. And so he was able to put it down for 25 years. And then he said, okay, I'm retired. I'll drink every now and then. But he couldn't. Um, in two months, he's already in rehab. 
And within, what is it, a couple of years, within four years, he's dead. Here are some of the things the man of 30 tried. Time. If I go a certain amount of time, I'll be able to drink or eat like a normal person, right? This may be if someone says like, I'll go to rehab, I'll get myself locked up for 30 days, 60 days, whatever, and then I'll be okay. They think time will do it. Well, this guy had 25 years and it didn't do it. The next thing he tried was he tried to regulate his drinking. That would be like saying, I'll only have three cookies at a time. That, does, that didn't work either. The other thing, the next thing he tried is stopping altogether. I will never have another glass of wine, he's, I'm sure he said, or us, I will never have another cookie again. And that didn't work either. And then he tried outside help. Every means of solving his problem, which money could buy, was at his disposal and outside help, and it didn't work. Well, how come he was able to put it down for 25 years and then he picks it up and two months later, he's a, you know, he's a hardcore alcoholic. I think the book talks about on page 24 um, that there comes a point in the drinking of every abnormal drinker where he's, let me get the words exactly right. He passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop is of absolutely no avail. He passes into a state. Almost think of like, um, I live I, in New Jersey, but I'm right on the border to New York, five minutes. In five minutes, I pass into a different state. I am no longer in New Jersey. However, this is different. If I want, I can turn my car around and come back to New Jersey. But this would be like me going to New York and being stopped from returning, crossing a line. I have to live in New York forever. So when is this line? And that's the tricky thing about this illness. We never know where the line is. So for this guy, the line was, looks like 25 years and two months from when he took his last drink. So there may be someone who one day can have three cookies and put it down, but they're struggling. We know when we're struggling, but then a month later, suddenly they can't. And the sad thing is that usually we cross that line. Um, we don't see the line coming. It's not like it's okay. You can be a moderate eater, a hard eater, but be careful because if you keep going for three months and two days, you're going to cross the line. That doesn't happen. We don't know where the line is. I suspect I crossed the line sometime by elementary school. Sometimes when I was, sometime when I was a little kid, I remember obsessing about the snacks in pre-K. So, um, so we never know. So here was a guy, he'd crossed the line. So time didn't work. Trying to regulate it didn't work. Trying to stop altogether didn't work. And trying, you know, therapy, rehab, whatever outside help, it didn't work. And it tells us on page 33 that, okay, this teaches us a lesson. If we're planning on stopping, there must be no reservation of any kind 
nor any lurking notion that someday, even if it's 25 years in the future, we will be immune to alcohol or food. Well, it would be nice if we could just hear this and say, okay, I'll tell myself that. I will have no lurking notion that one day I'll be able to do it. I got it, except it doesn't work like that. And they tell us why in the next paragraph, they say, okay, young people may be encouraged by this man's experience to think they can stop as he did by willpower, right? For 25 years. And they say, no, we doubt it. Don't think that just be, that you can say, I will have no lurking notion that I can do it, that it'll work. And they say, why? Because of the peculiar mental twist already acquired. So our brains don't work the way normal people's do. Why? Um, you know, generally because there's something wrong in our spirits. Dr. Bob had said he thought selfishness engendered or started this illness. In chapter five, it says selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of this illness. So that's the root. So let's say it starts in my selfish soul, but then it kind of sets up command central in my mind. And what does it do? Apologies to those of you who've heard the broken bridge 50 times. Here's 51 for the new people. Um, what's our peculiar mental twist? And that's really talked about on page 24, where it says, oh, the fact is most, I'm gonna change it, to compulsive eaters for reasons yet obscure have lost the power of choice with food. Our willpower becomes practically non-existent. And here's the, here's the problem, the peculiar mental twist. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink or the first compulsive bite. So here's how my mind normally works without a twist. Um, as a lot of you know, I am allergic to cats. So let's say Rose with her cute little cat in the background invited me to her house and I wanted to go because Rose seems like a nice person. And then I would, but stored in my memory are all these data points of what happened to me when I went near cats. Like you went to a pet store and you had an asthma attack. Oh, you went to this person's house with a cat and you know your lungs got tight and your eyes watered. So a whole bunch of stuff like that. So if I'm tempted to go someplace where there's a cat, my memory grabs the data points generates a thought that connects my memory to my conscious mind. And the thought runs across and says, danger, stop. Cats will give you an asthma attack. Don't do it. Or the book talks about hot stoves, right? We've all cleaned a hot stove, burnt our fingers. So stored in my memory are all these data points of, mm, you went to touch a hot stove and you burnt your finger. Here, you did it again. Here, you did it again. And so I'm about to clean up after dinner. The stove's hot. In a millisecond, my memory, whose job it is to protect me, that's like what he's hired for, um, grabs the data points, generates a thought to run across the bridge to say, stop, danger, hot stoves will burn you. Don't, don't clean the stove yet. My memory has protected me. 
when it came to food, my best example was back when I was in college, there was these certain kind of cookies I would binge on. I mean, I binge on a lot more, but this was like, this is my example. So it would come in a box of 20 and I would tell myself, I'm going to just have one or two. And so there I would, I'd be going downstairs to go to the drugstore to buy my box of 20 cookies to only have one or two. And my memory does its job. It scans the data points. Sees, you know, oh, this time you said you were going to have one or two and ate the whole box and then got a second box. And this time, and like 50 data points of the same thing. So generates a thought to run across the bridge to connect to my conscious mind to say, stop, danger. You're not going to be able to stop at one or two. You're going to eat the whole box. You're going to gain weight. You're going to hate yourself. Don't do it except unlike with cats and hot stoves, when it came to food, the connection between my memory and my conscious mind wasn't there. The bridge was broken. So the thought could not get across to protect me. So that is the peculiar mental twist. We are unable to bring into our consciousness with enough force to deter us the memory of the suffering and humiliation of a week, a month, however long ago. And we have no defense. That is our mental twist. And by the way, once that bridge is broken, it can never be fixed. And just learning that it's broken won't do a darn thing about it. We have to build another bridge and that's a bridge to God as we understand him. But for now, again, we want to hammer into ourselves what a first step is. And an assignment that I give my sponsees after I make them endure my broken bridge spiel again is I tell them to go and write their own examples, examples of how their bridge works. And people say things like, I got a bad sunburn. So now I always remember when I'm going out in the sun to put on sunscreen because the memories are there. And then I say, give me some examples, very specific examples of how it didn't work when it came to food. We want to smash that illusion that we are like other people or ever may be. Okay. Um, so page 34, they're saying, okay, for those who are unable to drink moderately, the question is how to stop altogether. Then it says, we are assuming, of course, that the reader wants to stop. This program is for people who desperately want to stop, not for people who say, yeah, I'm not sure I'm ready to stop. We're not supposed to convince them. Now, that being said, it is possible to want to stop and be unable to stop, right? Because we're powerless. We want to stop, but we can't. So here's how we know if someone really desires to stop. If you say, are you willing to do anything it takes so that God can come down and remove the obsession? And they say, yes, I'll do whatever you tell me. Um, I have a sponsee now, not sure she's on the, I'm sure she's on the line. I haven't seen her though. Um, she said, I'll do anything you tell me. I said, you haven't even heard yet all that I require my sponsees to do. She's like, I don't care. I'll do it. And I say, those are the kind of people who get better. So they say, okay, 
whether such a person can quit on a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent to which he's already lost the power of choice. If someone can quit on a non-spiritual basis, um, I say, great. And I, I can't help them because I couldn't. So I, I would have no idea what to say to that person because for me, the only solution was um, God rescuing me. So they say, okay, but if you know you need this, let's again, you know, see what causes this. What causes a relapse into drinking? What causes ongoing non-recovery? And top of page 35, they say, we'll talk about the mental state that precedes a relapse into drinking um, because that's the crux of the problem. If we recognize the mental state, we can apply a spiritual solution. Like if I'm agitated, mm, that might mean I'm not getting my way. So I'm being controlling, right? I'm being self-centered. Things aren't going the way I want. So they say, we need to be aware of what we're thinking, what we're feeling, and we can always apply a spiritual solution. So bottom of page 35, they talk about Jim. I love this story. So here's Jim. He's, um, he was obviously an alcoholic. He got better. His family came together. He went through the steps. He got a job back working as a salesman for a business he owned. All went well, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. Well, what does that mean? He worked through the steps. What does that term mean? Well, it's actually defined bottom of page 14, top of page 15. If an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge, right? He didn't enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others. It says he couldn't survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. So here's Jim, work through the steps. Looks like he's not sponsoring. No work, self-sacrifice for others. He's doing an 11-step program, it seems. And then what happened? Six times in a row, he gets drunk. What do the people do? Do they drop him? Do they say, Jim, you know, we spent time with you. You're getting drunk. Forget it. They don't. Say each time we worked with him, reviewing carefully what had happened. Um, I personally don't believe a sponsor should just drop a sponsee before because they pick up until we work carefully to see what happened and to try to help them. We all have spots. We all have, you know, Achilles heel. So we want to help the person. On page 120, it says, um, it's talking to a wife whose husband drinks again. And it says, either God has removed your husband's alcohol problem or he has not. If not, it had better be found out. So you can, and then you can place the problem along with everything else in God's hand. So if someone's eating compulsively, there's a problem in their relationship with God and we help them as long as they're willing to go to any length. So back to Jim, page 36, he gets drunk. This is the seventh time it seems. He's irritated, code word for resentment. Um, but there it is. He's driving around and he goes to a roadside place and he ordered a sandwich and a glass of milk, no thought of drinking. 
he thinks, let me put my milk into whiskey. Now, as Melissa has pointed out, like he had no business newly sober being in a place where they were serving whiskey, right? Um, what One of the things we need to do, especially early in recovery, but always is avoid places of temptation. So Jim probably could have found a place to eat. I mean, I think they had McDonald's back then. You know, surely they had places where whiskey wasn't served with sandwiches and milk. But what happened? He says, the thought crossed my mind. If I were to put an ounce of whiskey in milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. What does that mean? The thought crossed my mind. Um, so it seems that, again, as we talked about, the illness starts in the soul, but kind of migrates in the mind and sets up command central and puts thoughts in there that we don't always want to have, like the number one thought, this time you can have one and get away with it. Jim, this time you can have one shot of whiskey and get away with it. Um, so again, he wasn't protected. What does our book tell us the beginning of the chapter working with others that we get immunity from compulsive eating or by alcohol or alcohol by intensive work with others it says nothing will ensure immunity from drinking so much as intensive work with others. That makes us safe and protected. Jim wasn't working with others, ergo, I think that's just a cool word, ergo, he wasn't safe and protected. So when the illness wanted to insert a thought into his head, he had no protection. It was like he didn't have a, a helmet on. He didn't have a spiritual helmet on. And then bottom of page 36 says, he had much knowledge about himself, right? We could understand all all the ways we've been, all our different binge foods, all our food behavior patterns, it doesn't matter if we're not applying the solution. In page 37, they define insanity, a lack of proportion, a lack of the ability to think straight. And they say, this is the kind of thinking we all have. We go out, and we pick up and the next day we ask ourselves in all earnestness and sincerity how it could have happened. Okay, and then they continue because they really wanna help people get this. They say, okay, you may say, well, I'm not like Jim. I went out deliberately to binge, to numb myself. And I felt I was justified because I was nervous, angry, afraid, depressed, jealous, or fill in the blank. But again, there's still this thinking, it's still the broken bridge because it's thinking, I can go out and get drunk today, but I'll be able to start again tomorrow. Or I'll be able to go out and binge now and I don't even care. And we forget how always right after we did care and we felt awful. So even if we go out and say, screw it, I don't care, I'm entitled, or I can start tomorrow, it's still because 
there's a failure of our memory to defend us. Um, let me see, I'm gonna just skip now to the bottom of page 38. It says, okay, you may be thinking, yes, what you tell us is true, but it doesn't fully apply. We admit we have some of these symptoms, but we haven't gone to the extremes you guys have, and we're not likely to because we get it and we haven't lost everything. Thanks for the information. And on page 39, they say, okay, that might be true for someone who's drinking foolishly and heavily, but can stop or moderate, hasn't crossed the line. They smash it home the actual or potential alcoholic with hardly an exception will be absolutely unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. A first step alone won't do it. But of course, if I go to the doctor and the doctor says, see your chest x-ray, it proves you have pneumonia. And I say, I get it. Now I know what's wrong with me. I am powerless over pneumonia and it's making my life unmanageable. The doctor won't say, great, now that you know you're powerless over pneumonia, go home and heal. Of course not. He's going to write me a prescription for penicillin or, you know, whatever they give for pneumonia, right? A first step alone, all it does is just get us in a position where we can be willing to work the steps. And they continue on. They give another story about this guy, Fred. Same thing. He was told about everything that was wrong with him. And he said, okay, I get it. Thanks for telling me. Now I can go off and recover. Page 40, it says, we didn't hear from Fred for a while. But then he was back in the hospital. And what did he say? This is what he said. I was impressed with what you fellows said about alcoholism. And I frankly didn't believe it would be possible for me to drink again says, I appreciated your ideas about the subtle insanity that precedes the first drink. He understood about the broken bridge, but he said, okay, now I get it. And I've been good at solving my other problems. I, sh I should be okay with this. All I have to do is exercise my willpower and keep on guard. I mean, that might help when it comes to understanding sunburns right? That I need sunscreen. All it takes is a couple of sunburns and I'm done. And I remember to use sunscreen. Um, but with alcohol, with compulsive eating, it's different for a compulsive eater. So Fred talks about what happened on page 41. Just like Jim, he says, I was away, went to my hotel, dressed for dinner. As I crossed the threshold of the dining room, the thought came to mind, same words Jim used, the thought came, it would be nice to have just two drinks, that's it. And of course, we know what happened then, two drinks landed him in a taxi um, with a strange taxi cab driver instead of his wife and driving around binging on alcohol for days. And he says, as soon as I regained my ability to think, bottom of page 41 says, I went carefully over that evening in Washington. He says, I had made no fight against the first drink, right? He had no ability to fight it. 
said, this time I had not thought of the consequences at all. Well, of course not, because the bridge was broken, right? And he said, my friends were right. They said, if I was an alcoholic, the time and place would come, I would drink again. So page 42, he says, okay, now I know I have an alcoholic mind. But again, just because we know we have compulsive eater minds, that doesn't give us the power to stick to a food plan. All it does is give us the willingness to work the steps so that the grace of God can come in and give us the power to stick to our food plans. Um, so he said two members of AA came to see him and they, he says, they piled on me heaps of evidence to the effect that an alcoholic mentality like I had shown in Washington, was a hopeless condition. They snuffed out the last flicker of conviction. I could do the job myself. So again, I would say when we're sponsoring, it's really important to make sure as best we can, right? We sometimes make mistakes that our sponsees have taken a first step, that they understand what it means to be powerless and have an unmanageable life and that they're doing it. Only then, this is what happened, page 42, he says, then, meaning after he had taken a first step, they outlined the spiritual action, spiritual answer and program of action, which a hundred of them had followed successfully. Spiritual answer, trusting and relying on God, living our lives the way we think God wants us to, program of action, cleaning up the wreckage of our past making amends, then cleaning up the wreckage of our day and helping others. And he said, and I think a lot of people have found this, um, says, okay, this was sensible, but it's pretty drastic, right? We have to start living lives where we are rigorously honest, where we go out of our way to help people. He says, this isn't easy, but the moment I made up my mind to go through with the process, I had the curious feeling that my alcoholic condition was relieved, as in fact, it proved to be. Wonderful line I have in um, the margins said by Herb Kay, willingness allows grace to enter. That was my experience too, when I took a sponsor who I knew would let me get away with nothing and said, I'll do anything. Um, and then went out and said the same thing to God pretty much. That was it. The grace of God entered and the obsession with food went away. Then our friend Fred says, um, very bottom of 42, quite as important was the discovery that spiritual principles would solve all my problems, not just the alcohol problem, not just the food problem, all our problems. Um, and how come? Because I think most of our problems are from having um, uber desires, like desires that are in overdrive. Like we don't just have desires for things. We have demands and resentments and fears. And this program gives me a way to deal with those things. And that's really all, all my problems. Um, I have recently someone I'm very close to, like if I had to list the top 10 people in the world who I love, this person would be in that list. And 
um, they were suicidal for a while, like feeling suicidal. And, and I was helpful and, you know, did all I could um, talk to the person a lot. And then starting four days ago, the person just start ghosting me, like clearly doesn't want to talk to me. And I started, you know, right after it's like, okay, this is time to do a resentment inventory and a fear inventory. And I'm thinking for resentment, because this program can solve all my problems, even my resentment, like after all I did for this person, how could they not like keep in touch? And then fear, what if something happens? And I resolved my resentment by think by my part being, I think people should live their lives a certain way that makes me comfortable and secure. And that's self-centered. People can live their lives whatever way they want. They can not call me if they don't want to call me. They can make decisions that might harm them. Now, I have a right to set up boundaries. And I may say, you know, I don't want to give more time or money or whatever, Um Never want to say I'm not going to give more love, but the love may be different. The love may be just more prayer. Um, but I see even like that kind of problem. And then the fear, um, no, there's nothing to be afraid of today. If anything were to ever happen, I trust God would give me the grace to deal with it then. Um, but when I looked at my part, instead of just how could this person after all I've done, you know, not like just ghost me after calling me multiple times a day and asking me for help and now just ghost me. Um, and I, but I made myself look for my part and this is someone I love dearly. And I have to say, I can sit here now with zero resentment and zero fear and just like a hope and a prayer that this person is okay. This way of life can solve all our problems. And on page 43, Fred continues on and he says, I've been brought into a way of living infinitely more satisfying and I hope more useful than the life I lived. Couple things here. He says, I have been brought. He didn't bring himself. God brought him into a, a way of living that's more satisfying. And he, he says, I hope it's more useful. He's been changed. I'm sure back when I was binging, I could care less if I was useful. All I cared about was getting what I wanted, but here's this guy. He's saying, I hope I'm useful. He's saying that the worst days now are better than the best days when he was drinking. And that's how, that's what we find. Like he says, I wouldn't change this life, even if I could to go back. So they conclude by saying that um, they quote a doctor. Well, I assume a doctor, a staff member of a world-renowned hospital. And they say, um, there's no doubt that people like us are 100% hopeless apart from divine help. And the last paragraph says once more. So it's like, okay, once more to make sure we all have it. Um, the alcoholic or the compulsive eater at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, against the first compulsive bite. Can't do it. Or we can't think our way out of this. 
except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide a defense. So the group can't be our higher power. No other human being, that's the group as higher power is not a solution put forth in the big book. But they say his defense, because we need a defense, must come from a higher power, capital H, capital P, which means God. Um, and next Monday, because it's Halloween, I figured I will do the appropriate chapter, Dr. Bob's Nightmare. Um, and we can talk about how Dr. Bob really went from a nightmare to founding this program. And he has a lot of beautiful things to say about finding God. And then on Thursday, uh, Melissa will pick it up with We Agnostics. And that is all I have. Thanks.